0: going to ask you to do something that I've never done, Um, going all the way back to being a college pastor, never done, um, but it just feels right. This morning was kind of a train wreck, and Justin and I were talking, and it's funny, the longer you're involved in kind of services like this, the more you begin to realize that when it's a train wreck is usually when God's going to show up the mightiest, you know. Um, It's kind of his little way of teaching you your place in things. So when it's a train wreck, it usually means that God kind of is going to do something, or if anything's going to happen, it's going to be God. This morning was kind of a train wreck, so it just got Justin and I both thinking that um, maybe God's got plans for just us being here today together. Um, So what I'd like to do is just open us in a word of prayer, and I'd like for you to stand. I've never asked you to do that because it might be awkward, but if you would, just stand and let's just pray as a community. So, would you pray with me? Father, um, it must be so much easier for you to see through all the the clutter in our lives to what really matters. Uh, It's not easy for us, but it must be so easy for you to just see what really is going on, what's really of eternal value, what's really in our hearts. And I just pray this morning that we would somehow step outside of ourselves that you would take us alongside you, that you would show us what you see, what you know, what you desire, what you long for for us, that in all things we would be able to put you first, that we'd be able to glorify you and not try to glorify ourselves or anything else. Let us become worshipers, true worshipers of you. Father, be with us this morning in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. So I don't know about you, but I think we get into the Christian life, and, and uh, sometimes it begins to feel like, man, it's just too much effort. It's just too difficult. It's too much of an uphill climb. Just don't have the energy. It's like it'd be like me riding my bike up to Mount Bachelor. Um, I couldn't do it if my life depended on it, at all. <laughs> um, it's just too much effort. And I think sometimes we feel like it's just too many things. That it's it's not that it's so hard, but it's like man, it's just overwhelming. All the little things that are needed to be spiritual and And every day is a new day, and it probably has different principles and different rules and different little things to be the perfect Christian. And, and, you know, I don't know, a thousand different cliches to fit every situation. And it's just overwhelming and just how much um, is entailed here. And I think that the Christian life can sometimes look really heavy um, or really oppressive or really difficult or really just wearisome. And I think what we see this morning as we look in the Gospel of John, is something totally different. Absolutely, radically, totally different. I think Jesus is going to show us that it's it's liberating. It is liberating. It, it is it is where freedom is found. It's where it's light, where it's easy. and And so these are words that I think, if we really understood what goes on in our own heart, these are words we cry out for. These are nourishing words. They're nurturing words. So, as we look in John chapter 8, I just want to pick it up a little bit. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, which is one of three kind of holidays where Jews would have gone to Jerusalem. And he's there, and, and it's interesting because he's been teaching for a while, and so some people are probably interested, others aren't, and then some people are kind of changing sides as time goes on. They're, they're kind of interested and then they kind of begin to side with the majority and and you just kind of see this shift going on and it's really an interesting deal. So Jesus is going on and he's teaching and we come to this section in verse 31 and it says this, to the Jews who had believed him in this crowd, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And, and they understand that he's talking about spiritually here because obviously they're all under Roman occupation. So one of the few times where I think they all get what Jesus is saying and they know that he's talking about in a spiritual way, are they slaves or are they free? And they say, we're sons of Abraham, we're descendants of Abraham, so of course we're not spiritually in bondage. And uh, so how can you say that we will be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed." I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. We're going to unpack that a little bit in a minute, but um, to the Jewish mind of this time, there's only two things that can set you free, and it's the Torah, um, it's, it's the word of God, it's the scriptures, and it's by being an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. So here's Jesus, and he's saying, I'm going to set you free. Well, who are you? Um, it's radical words. There are hugely radical words for Jesus to be saying that I'm going to be the one that's going to liberate you spiritually. Not this or that, but me. And it's really a fascinating thing, and I want to backtrack just a little bit and say, we, have a, we naturally understand that there's two categories here. And there's the world... And, there's, and I'm just going to call it religion. And we can conform to one or the other. And we automatically think this way in terms of this dualism that over here is where you're worldly and you're conforming to the ways of the world and you're gratifying the sinful nature. It's the proverb that says... Um, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly, that you're doing the foolish things that God didn't mean for people to do, and the fool goes back to it. So it'd be like if I, uh, and and puked right here on the stage, and then let it get a little crusty, and then came back and knelt down and ate it. Ate it. What does that do to you? Oh, it's, oh, that's so disgusting. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's not natural. It's not normal. So we, we kind of know, man, this is where we're not supposed to go. It's, it's the world. It's disgusting. It's sin. It's wrong. And then we naturally think in terms of this as being moral. This is where morality is. This is where the good people are, not the bad people. And, and we conform to the right kind of community with the right kind of rules, the right kind of laws, and, and we set ourselves apart from those sinners over there so we can conform to the world or we conform to these people that act a certain kind of way and that are different or set apart from, from those people. We naturally think that way. The, the absolutely mind-blowing thing that Jesus is doing here that's, that's really difficult for people to swallow is he comes and says, you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. Um, You're supposed to follow me, not conform to the world. Um, Paul says in Galatians, you have been set free. Do not use your freedom to um, gratify um, the sinful nature. You know, you've been set free. Don't use your freedom to gratify the sinful nature. These people think that they've been set free, And Jesus says, you're slaves. So you're not really free over here, and you think you're free over here, but Jesus says, you're not. He says, but the Son, if you follow the Son, you don't conform to religion or the majority or the religious leaders who aren't recognizing where God is at. If you don't conform to that, but you follow me, I will set you free. Fascinating thing is that Jesus calls these people slaves to sin. We don't have a category for that. Sin is, is is this. It's what you see in R-rated movies. It's it's what the guy down the street does, or or Uncle Eddie, or or whatever it is. Like, sin is really easy to see. These people don't sin. Jesus calls them sinners. Um, Eugene Peterson has a book, Tell It Slant, where he, he coins this, this word. He takes the, the Greek word for righteous um, people and then turns it around and he calls it eugenic sins or whatever. But it's like sins of the righteous people. Do you know that there's sins, a set of sins that are unique to these people? These people can't have them. Only these people can. What are they? Pride. Self-righteousness. Um, I mean, we could kind of go on with the list, but this group of people have have found a comfort zone in conforming to each other. But what they've lost is that they're no longer following God. So it's like in the Old Testament, there's the the nation of Israel is in the desert and there's a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and they're supposed to follow and what happens is we begin to forget this and we begin to just conform into a nice little religious community that reinforces each other and we can feel pretty good about ourselves because we're not like the sinners over here and that's a sin itself. We begin to exalt and worship something other than God. We've made an idol of religion. We've made an idol of ourselves as righteous people. The idea of us being better than, or higher than, or loftier than. And these people over here worship pleasure. And Christ comes and says, you're slaves to sin. But if you recognize who I am, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he goes on and says, if the sun um, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. It's absolutely mind-blowing if, if we really understand it. I was going to do a, a sermon on eugenic sins, Peterson's thing, and, and I thought I'd keep the staff on their toes. I was threatened to show a picture of the different staff people each week or something like that just to get them going. But we, we mistake when we only see this here, we mistake liberty for freedom. We mistake liberty for freedom. Liberty is an external thing. These people think they have liberty because they live in a country or they find ways to do whatever they want and no one says they can't. It's liberty. These people find liberty in the sense that there's an external... um, ability to connect with a, a group of like-minded religious religious people, religiously focused people, and they have the liberty to not have to sin. Nobody's rubbing their nose in it and making them do these kinds of sins. So there's external freedom, what we call liberty. Jesus is saying spiritually you're not set free. You're not set free. You're a slave to, to the law. You're, you're a slave to Moses. You're still in your sin. I'm here to set you free from that. Yet, you're still here missing freedom and thinking that liberty is the ballgame. It's a fascinating quote. I love it. G.K. Chesterton said a long time ago, the eagle has no liberty, only loneliness. Think of the metaphor. The, the eagle, you think, wow, it's majestic, it's noble, it's, it's free. And it's like, no, it's not. It's has liberty, but it also has loneliness. And so we mistake the thing that allows us to do what we want as what we're really after, what we're really made for. And Jesus says, you're missing it all. God sent me so that you could come out of conformity to the world or conformity to religion and find a true relationship with me. So where these are conformity, this is relationship. And it's dynamic, it's not static, and it's the real thing, and I will lead you to where you were always meant to be. It's a really interesting thing, we, uh, the word happy in our culture. Uh, in Christian culture, it's really bad. In secular culture, it's really good. And both of us completely misunderstood, misunderstand the idea of happy. Up until recently, the word happy was so much richer and fuller. It meant joy, it meant a state of being, it meant blessedness. So the, the Greek word makarios in, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, it actually means a state of blessedness, happiness. It's the, it's the Greek word, there's two Greek words for happy, and that's one of them, makarios. And so we, we always had this idea of happiness is when we are acting in accordance with what we are meant to, to be as humans, And and there's a happiness, a fullness, a satisfaction that comes from that. And it wasn't until just recently that happiness meant pleasure. So when Thomas Jefferson said, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he's actually talking about what John Locke said, and John Locke got it from Aristotle, and it's this idea of a virtue-based happiness, that a machine, a human, like a machine, was designed to work a certain way, and when you act in accordance with it, you reach this state of, of harmony or blessedness, um, so virtue is actually a desirable trait. We use the word happy like in, in a, an anti-God, anti-virtue kind of way. That it's just a new thing for the word happy. So in the Christian tradition, the word happy is everywhere. I want you to just listen to this from St. Augustine. He says this, It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. We were made with a natural hunger for satisfaction and fulfillment. It's there, we all know it, it's what motivates us to do the actions that we do. Our desires lead us into actions. So the interesting thing, no matter where you're at here, is desire is what is leading you. It should be under, but I, I don't have room under. So Augustine said it, um, that we feed on that which gives us joy. We feed on that which gives us joy. So when we think something is going to give us joy, we desire it and we try to feed on that. And so when we are following the world and conforming this way and gratifying our sinful desires, we, through our desires, think that this will satisfy our hunger for happiness, our hunger for satisfaction. When we go to church, and we get with the religious group and we begin to enjoy certain traditions and certain rituals and certain things, it makes us happy and content and it satisfies us and we like it. And our desire is telling us that identification will satisfy us, will make us happy. And Christ is saying, look, only I and the true object for your desire that will truly satisfy, make you happy, set you free. Jesus says in John chapter 15, we're going to get to it later, he says, abide in me, do this by obeying my commands. I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may may be complete. hey, you need to obey me, not the sinful desires, not the desire to conform to the community, but you need to be in conformity with me, to follow me, to have this relationship. So you've got to stay with me and obey. Well, how do you obey me? You've got to love. And I'm asking you to do this, to abide me, so that I can put my joy into you, so that your joy may be complete. The thing that you need, the thing that you desire, the thing that's going to give you satisfaction, fulfillment, what you were created for. I want to give that to you. You do it by abiding to me. So this little passage that we're reading in John parallels in Matthew the the, the idea of the soils. And if you remember that, what's going on with that parable is there's the word that is seed and it's sown into different soils. And some soils don't receive that that word. They like begin to, like some of these followers of Jesus that after a couple days change their minds. Like the word begins to produce something and then it, it dies out. And then some of it, it's like Satan comes and snatches it away, and we're going to see in just a minute that Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you people here that don't recognize me, you're, you're sons of your father, and your father is the devil. And, and, and the parable of the soils it gets snatched away, that seed does. And eventually, you see seed that gets planted in good soil, hearts that are desirous, of this relationship with God, and they abide there. They stay here. They reject all else, and it begins to produce this abundance of life that we all desire in our hearts. It begins to produce that. So that's why Jesus begins this whole section with this phrase in verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's like the booths, and there's this kind of thing, and there's multiple days to it. But they're setting up these lights, and then they, like all the kind of festivals, they all point to God's deliverance and salvation, and, and even the idea of the Messiah. And he's saying, here's, here's this. Like, as it's going through its days, you got this category, I'm that guy. I'm here. All you've got to do is believe in me. All you've got to do is follow me and I can set you free. So he uses this metaphor, I'm the light. A little while back when they said, you know, you're, are you like Moses? Moses gave us manna and Jesus says, I'm the manna. And before that he was talking to this woman at the well that had water at the well. And he says, look, I'm the water. I'm the water that would spring up to eternal life, this lasting water, this living water. And he's trying to say, everything that you think will satisfy you, you're wrong with. And what you're wrong with is you're looking outside of me for what you really need to look to me for. I am the source of satisfaction. I am the source of life and nourishment, manna sent down from heaven. I'm the light. I'm the one that's come to set you free. I'm the deliverer. I'm the Messiah. So each time they're saying, we're looking for something, he says, I'm that thing. And when we sin, when we're over here like with with stupid little sins because we think they're going to make us happy, and if you've gone down this road, I went down that road, you realize really quickly it is absolute cotton candy and it doesn't satisfy at all. It's like trying to suck satisfaction out of dirt, dry dirt from between here and Prineville. I mean, just think of like putting it to your mouth and trying to suck satisfaction out of that. And what's crazy is you get over here where religion is, and we're like, man, we're not like that. And we try and suck satisfaction out of a lemon. I've been around, I've worked at Baptist churches. I know what that face looks like. Just, okay? I'm serious about this. But we grab the law, we grab the moral code, We we arm ourselves with our pride. We set ourselves apart from those people over there. We stand up a little higher and look down on them, and we think we're great, and we begin to try and satisfy that that hunger we have, and we're sucking this lemon. And it doesn't satisfy. And it doesn't lead to joy. There's no happiness in that. Jesus is saying, man, (laughs) don't you get it that the majority is often wrong? The whole idea of the prophet is because the majority is usually wrong. I mean, the whole idea of the prophet is the one guy, solitary, by himself, standing in judgment on everybody, using conformity to a bunch of religious people as your compass for finding the right way is a really bad strategy, says Jesus. Um, quick time out. Man, we need to hear that. Ultimately, you're not responsible to me. Ultimately, you're not responsible to the person next to you. Ultimately, you're not even responsible to your parents. You're responsible and accountable to God. It doesn't matter what kind of background you come from, what kind of education you have, how busy your life is, whether you work three or four jobs, whether it just feels too much to you or not, God has made it available to where you can seek Him out, and He will lead you regardless if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, I will open. If you ask, you will receive. Over and over and over. And so we, we get the blessing of community. We get the encouragement, hopefully, that community brings. But at all times, we're not good or righteous because of our proximity to community. We are good or we are right or we are righteous or or whatever because of our proximity to Christ, because we have forsaken all and we are going to follow him. That's why Christ says some really weird things. He says, unless you leave mother, brother, whatever, family for my sake, you can have no part with me. You can't go both ways. I might give it back to you, but you've got to follow me and let me set the course. I'm the pillar of fire. I'm, I'm the cloud. I'm going to lead. You make sure your relationship is there with me. You follow me. You trust my grace to be the thing that makes you good or, or sets you free from the law. Not your own actions. Not your comparison games. You trust me. You follow me. You let me lead. I will set you free. And I'll bring everything else into harmony. We pursue what we desire. We have to begin to understand that we need to desire the right thing. We have to question our desires. The church doesn't talk about desire that much. We, we like say desire is bad and we try and kill it. And we're left with, with this. There's no counterbalance to that. Um, if this is sin over here, and I kill desire for sin, all it does is bring me to, like, bland middle ground. The, the removal of bad actions. But if I don't replace that with desire to follow Christ, there, there's, there's no, I mean, I've just said no to something bad. I haven't said yes to something good. So the idea is not to say, desire is bad, you have to kill it. We've said that way too long in fundamentalist Christianity. Desires bad. Kill your desires. No. Change the object of your desires. Begin to see where things lead and focus your desires, your God-given desires, on the things that they were actually designed to be set on so that you can get the satisfaction that God wants us to have in our relationship with Him as His Son. I want to read this to you. It's another Augustine quote. He says this, You, God, arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us for yourself and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. You arouse us. you, You stir us up so that when we praise you, you may bring us joy the act of following you, making you the only thing, bringing you sacrifices, which means we say no to other things, we, we lay them on the altar, we walk away even though they're valuable, that when we praise you, that that brings us joy and our soul feeds on that which brings it joy and it begins to, to fuel this relationship where we don't want anything else. The more we follow Christ, the more we, we get to enjoy that relationship, the more shallow other things look. C.S. Lewis um, said it a different way. He said this in his book, The Reflection on the Psalms. We delight to praise that which we enjoy. We delight to praise that which we enjoy. That which brings us satisfaction and and fullness and happiness. And when we think that this is where we're going to find enjoyment or happiness, we praise it. We make an idol of this. This becomes bigger to us than God. And when we think that this is what's going to give us joy, conformity to people, status within a group, a subgroup, pride, self-righteousness, when we think that that's what's going to feed us, we praise it. We elevate it. We begin to worship it and it becomes an idol, and we set it up higher than God, and when we reject this and say, I want Christ and Christ alone. When we begin to see our joy as coming from Christ, we delight to then praise Him. So we have to look at our desires. It's what's called Christ-centered preaching. If, you, if you've never seen Antioch's Four Commitments, the first one is Christ-centered I could stand up here for a year and give you little principles on how to make your life better. Little nuggets from the book of Proverbs, little biblical things that are wise little sayings that you can implement in your life and and that are going to twist and turn you in more, more of a harmony with the way God created the world. But if I never stand here and preach Christ and Christ crucified, that we might have the grace to follow him and to be set free from our sins, to have a relationship that is otherwise unavailable to us. If I don't preach that, then we can never be free. The the, the most we'll ever become is this. This is what's fascinating about the word holy. The word holy literally means to be set apart. So in the Old Testament, there's dirty and then there's clean, and then out of the clean things, you kind of can baptize or ceremonially cleanse something, and that, that clean thing now becomes holy. It's set apart unto God. And we cannot be set apart unto God over here if we remain in our sins and we don't see Christ as the one who has liberated and made us free spiritually. He died for our sins. The grace is now there. We, we think that by our actions and our behavior we're holy, but we're not set apart unto God. We're set apart unto ourselves or religion or a moral code. That's great and all. It's not as destructive as this, but if we think that's everything, we're not really sons of God. We're not really following God. We're not really seeing Christ as the Messiah who has come to set us free. And so when we preach, it's got to be more than little moralistic things. It's got to be, Drop all and follow Christ. Rich, young ruler, it's great you're following all these rules. Drop all and come and follow Christ. You know, Martha, it's wonderful that you're running around setting up all the events for the church. Drop it and sit at Jesus' feet like your sister Mary. It's this really inverted, weird, strange thing that's really simple if you really cut it open that Christianity is not an infinite number of do's and don'ts. It's really about one simple thing. Have we died to all else that we might live to Christ? Have we died to all else that we might live to Christ? Augustine says this, For He is the fountain of our happiness, He the end of all our desires. Being attached to Him, or rather, let me say, reattached... We tend towards him by love that we may rest in him and find our blessedness by attaining that end. That our true satisfaction is going to come there and only there. We reject all else that we might find it here in Christ. Um, When we first started Antioch, before we started Antioch, (laughs) we were meeting back at um, the Marital in the evenings and we gave everybody clay. Uh, There's like only 30 people, so at the dollar store, it only costs like 30 bucks, right? Um, and this is all dried out, so I can't shape it. It's my kids' Play-Doh. Um, but <laughs> it's not going to work that way. So this is actually shaped like a little stick figure. It's a lump of clay. We had everybody take and, and shape themselves out of this Play-Doh that we gave them. And we said, okay, you got, you got this little self, and that, that represents you. Okay, and then we we prayed the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day just our daily bread, our manna. And uh, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I said, okay, um, God is the potter and we are the clay. He's the one that shapes us and, and molds us. He um, said, Of that prayer, how much of it had to do with circumstances? The air, the nothingness around us, our hearts, our soul, the clay. He said, None of it really. The only things was God only help us glean from our circumstances that which we need for, for just basic sustenance. Everything else was soulish, heartish. It was clay. It was God helped shape me to fit my circumstances. Not my circumstances to fit me. And I said to the church, I was like, you know what's fascinating is um, 90% of what we pray, if you just stop and listen to our prayers, 90% of what we pray is circumstances. God fix this, God help with that, God do this, God this circumstance, God that circumstance. I said, what do you think God really wants to get his hands on? He wants to get his hands on us, not our circumstances. And the fascinating thing about that, if I can switch the metaphor, Ben Edwards helped me with some film, is that we, uh, this is film, and it's designed in such a way that when it's exposed to something it begins to reflect that and when we expose ourselves to the world it shapes us and when we expose ourselves to legalism in the church and the things that would lead us to believe that we ourselves our our own righteousness and that we're better than. When we expose ourselves to not grace, we begin to look like that. And when we expose ourselves to Christ, what happens? We, our soul, our heart is shaped into a certain way. And so when we talk about Christianity, we're so amped about, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I'll do it today. I'm fired up. Say go. Just point the direction. And here, here's the crazy thing is it's, we can't shape this. God shapes this. The fruit of our efforts is love, joy, peace. peace. No, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. When we are exposed to God, what comes about the good things in us is not through us; it's through Him. That's why Jesus says over and over in John, "Abide in Me. Just, just come walk with Me. Just, just come sit here and and expose yourself to Me and listen to My teachings and be nourished by Me in this relationship. Stop striving." Just come sit and be so that I can get my hands on you and begin to shape you and love you and form you and make you. I desire so much for you. And when I can bring that about, it's abundance of fruit. It's, it's, it's what it was always meant to be. Just settle down. Just stop. I got frustrated about two weeks ago with the Gospel of John. Man, I was just getting so frustrated. I'm like, there's just not enough to teach in John. There's not enough theology here. There's whole chunks where Jesus is like, it's me, and I'm giving testimony to myself, and I'm the one, and hey, haven't you heard? It's me, and look at me, and I'm like, you've already said that. I can't preach that again. And I began to realize that the fascinating thing about the Gospel of John is there's only so much space back with limited paper in those days to write this Gospel that God wanted us to have for Scripture. And the whole stinking thing is about one person. It's about Jesus Christ. That God himself has come down in the form of Jesus Christ that we might have a relationship, that we might follow him the way the Israelites were to, to follow the cloud. That that this is all that really matters is our exposure to Him. And that looks like refraining from stuff, not doing stuff. It looks like prayer. It looks like solitude. It looks like silence. It looks like discipline. It looks like denial. It looks like humility. It looks like teachability. It looks like a godly hunger that says there's nothing in this world that will satisfy me other than Christ and Christ alone. I will not be satisfied by anything else than Christ and Christ alone. This is a cheap cotton candy. I don't want it. I only want Christ. Paul said that. I want to know Christ and Christ crucified and nothing else. Because he understood that only there can we be nourished where we really reside, not the silly behaviors that are external to us, but the heart that's on the inside that can only be molded and shaped by a loving God that can put His hands in there and do it. I, uh, I think we have an amazing ability to forget as Christians. We have an amazing ability to forget. Our faith really is simple and we forget that and we, we substitute it in a cheap way with moralism and behaviorism. And we forget. And maybe I'm only talking to like 20 of you this morning. Um, It's, you know, it's perfectly cool. I don't care. Um, But I'm beginning to just realize that life is too short and that we can't just kill time missing the target. We can't kill time... Wandering around doing religious things and feeling good about ourselves and missing the only thing that really matters. We can't waste time getting better in our behaviors, but not growing in our soul and our heart. We can't put ourselves into other people's hands or into the hands of institutions like a church. And the whole time missed it, that we should be in the hands of God, that we should be exposing ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. That that better than all our action is our, our inaction where we sit and we're in prayer and where we listen. And better than praying about all the circumstances, we just say, you know what, God, you know better than 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 we do what we need. I'll listen to you. I'll sit here in the silence. I will wait for you. You lead. You direct. You're not my genie in the bottle. There's a story of um, a worship leader by the name of Matt Redmond, and it's probably familiar to many of you. And as the story goes, and we're going to sing the song in just a minute, but as the story goes, Matt Redmond was in a church, and the pastor of that church got to the point where he realized worship as corporate singing, the, the, the corporate singing of the church, was becoming unto itself a thing of conformity and where we felt good, or in that congregation there was a a feeling of goodness and satisfaction that was coming through the act of worship, not the person that we worshipped. We have an easy time forgetting, don't we? And so this pastor came to the congregation and says, we're going to step back from corporate worship. We're going to refrain from doing this thing that we think is so important that we might learn what is really important about it. So we're going to take a fast. We're going to take a break. And then through this time, Matt Redman, um, in his meditations and prayers and in this stepping back from worship, came to understand again what really is at the heart of worship. Who really is at the heart of worship? The relationship we desire at the heart of it all. And he wrote this song that's kind of very familiar, and it's called The Heart of Worship. That We want to bring it back to the simplicity. You might be running with a lot of effort. You might think that Christianity is so many things it overwhelms you, but it's really not. It's just putting ourselves in the hands of a loving God through the person of Christ. So we're going to sing that song, and then I want to come back up and give us a benediction this morning. It says in the end of this passage to the religious majority... It says, he who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. If we belong to God, we will hear, according to Christ, that the way to be set free, that, that the door to this cage that we're supposed to fly out of is Christ and Christ alone. That we will heed the message of John where over and over... God, God is pleading through Christ that we would just look to His Son, that He is sent, that we might be set free. Peter says in Second Peter, He gives uh, this benediction because Peter understands that it really all sinners here, and if we don't come here, that we're never going to find ourselves in God's grace, in His loving hands. And He says, "Listen." But the one thing is that you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you would grow not only just in the knowledge of the theology, but in the grace where you immerse yourself and you sit and you realize that all the goodness in you is what He has imparted to you, that Christ in you, the hope of glory, that this relationship is what makes you right Not the behaviors of the proximity to religious things, but the proximity to Christ, abiding in Him, this relationship makes you right, makes you right with God. So grow in that grace and in that knowledge of our Lord and Savior, the light, the manna, the water, whatever the metaphor, the thing that we need that will set us free, Jesus Christ, and that to Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.